Hey, I'm Doug Ott from Enchant, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. I'm your host, Michael Citro, and this is episode number 114. My guest for this episode is Doug Ott from Enchant. Enchant is celebrating a couple of milestone anniversaries this year. The debut album, A Blueprint of the World, came out in 1993, so it is celebrating 30 years. And the album Tug of War came out in 2003, so it is 20 years old here in the beginning of August. So I was uh, very happy to talk to Doug about those two albums and go through them a little bit, track by track, not quite, but uh, some of the major highlights. Also talked to Doug about his background, joining Enchant, some of the band personnel changes, and a lot more. Before I bring you that interview... I want to make sure that uh, I remind you to go to michaelsrecordcollection.com where you can find links to everything. You can sign up for my free newsletter. It comes to your mailbox every week. You can also find a link there to my Patreon. You can find out what you get in exchange for supporting this independent podcast for as little as $2 per month. And of course, the more you support the show, the more your benefits increase. There are also links there to my social media accounts. You can find me on Twitter at Mike's Records and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, although I hardly ever post on TikTok. I also invite you to email me at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. Let me know what's on your mind, suggest a topic, or maybe you would like to come on the show and talk about a record. All right, with the housekeeping out of the way, let's get to that interview with Doug Ott from Enchant. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me from the band Enchant, Doug Ott is my guest. Doug, how you doing? I'm doing great. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing really well. I appreciate your time today. I wanted to talk about a couple of very um, big milestone anniversaries here. We've got uh, we've got 30 years of this one, a blueprint of the world, and we're celebrating uh, 20 years of tug of war. Can you yeah. believe it? <laughs> I, it's hard to believe it really is before we get to those records i want to ask you what i ask all my guests which is doug what was your first favorite record oh gosh my first favorite record that's that's a hard question i, I know what my first album i bought was on my own um which was uh boston the very first boston record in 1976 okay um, my dad wanted me to get hotel california but i went with the heavier record uh but you know it's hard to say you know favorites change through the years there were albums i listened to all the time you know by the time i was 17 or 18 years old that i just couldn't stop listening to but if you were to give me a, a genre or a uh an actual band i could probably give you a little better answer than that <laughs> do you remember how you first got into music how you like what was the what was that starting point for you um, well, my dad listened to music all the time. My house was just filled with music. Um, you know, I, I was born in 1964. So by the time I was five or six years old, 1971, 72, around that era, there was so much music on the radio, uh, AM radio, especially. Well, there was no FM radio yet, but AM radio. And my house was just filled with music. My mom was a singer. Uh, and she was in a band when I was uh, a little kid. 
Um, I sang in the choir with her and my mom and my mom, my grandmother. So music was just part of the life. We were always singing and you know, dancing around and, and listening to music. And I never thought about playing music until uh, I went to my very first concert in 1979, which was Cheap Trick and Pat Travers. Oh, no and kidding. I, I just yeah, saw I remember, Cheap Trick last week oh, or two yeah, weeks ago. Uh, huge fan, huge fan. And, and I remember walking out of the concert just thinking, like, how do you get that job? That's the coolest job in the world. I mean, watching everybody's face in the bands, um, watching the, the, the audience reaction, reaction, feeling my own reaction. And I told my friend who I was, was with at the time, um, you know, God, I, I really wish I could do that. And he says, well, you have to buy a guitar first. And so the next day I took my paper out money and I bought my very first guitar. That was December 27th, 1979. Wow, that's great! You got a great memory. You got dates and everything. Yeah, I, I'll never forget. I still have the I still have the ticket. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Now I noticed we're we're going to talk a little bit about Enchant and what you're up to now. But I noticed that the the website seems to be offline. The Facebook page hasn't had a post since 2022. What is officially the current status of Enchant? Does it still exist? Well, Ted, our singer Ted Leonard, he moved to New York, upstate New York. Um, his stepson was, uh, ill and, um, the family, his family, him and his wife wanted to move there to try to support their son while he was going through this stuff. And mm -hmm. he's been there ever since. And it's been at least, I don't know, four, four or five years now. I think he's been gone, but we still talk and everything. Um, Ed and Sean and Bill and I still live in the Bay area. So we see each other and get together. Um, we jam every once in a while. We've been talking lately about making another record so ed and sean and i have been getting together and kind of jamming on some ideas um i talked to ted about it a couple months back and he said dude write some music and i'm totally down so it's just a matter of us getting off our asses and doing something honestly got it and ted's been obviously busy with pattern seeking animals and spock's beard and he went on tour with transatlantic so yeah uh, between that and what he's been dealing with with his family i'm sure he's not had a ton of time to devote to it either well he said this to me he said he hasn't written a song in like five or six years wow and you know with pattern seeking animals you know uh the other guy the band john he writes the material pretty much um and with spock's you know he was I think this is probably the last song he wrote was for Spock's beard. And that's been a while too. So, you know, life come and comes and you get married and you have kids and mortgages and all these things. And sometimes it kind of takes you away from the thing that you really love. And that's really what happened with us in a lot of ways, but we still, you know, we're not disbanded in any way. Yes. The website went away a long time ago. Um, my Facebook moderator was going through some stuff on his own. He lives in Paris. And so he stopped kind of working on the stuff and, and since we haven't had anything going on, there's nothing been really to report or talk about. So we mm -hmm. just kind of let everything kind of just lie until we uh, fire up again. Got it.
Tell me about your history with the band. How did you come to join Enchant? Because Mayday existed, and then I, I'm not clear on how how your involvement started. Well, Mayday was a five-piece band of a bunch of college kids, and I was in a band called Chapter, and it was like progressive, but not really heavy progressive. It was more of a lighter progressive in the, you know, I want to say Floyd kind of Genesis kind of way, saga-ish a little bit. And we played a uh, festival kind of gig out here in uh, California and Oakland. And I saw the band play and I was like, God, these kids are amazing. And they had much more of a Genesis, yes, kind of IQ, kind of a vibe, which I love. Mm-hmm. And uh, my band had more of a poppy kind of a thing going on, which was fine, but it just wasn't really speaking to me the same way as listening to their music. And the drummer of the band, who was Paul Craddock, he watched my set after they played, and he thought, man, that guitar player is amazing. I really wish I had a guy like that in my band. And turns out his two guitar players were leaving. They were going off to college in another state. Um, and he said to me that night, hey, can we get together and have dinner or something? I want to talk to you about some stuff. And I said, sure. We got together at a Moroccan restaurant, drank some Algerian wine. <laughs> and he asked me to join Mayday. So I did. And I got together with the guys that were in the band at the time. It was Mike Benignus Geimer, um, who was our keyboard player for a long time. Mm-hmm. And another gentleman by the name of Brian Klein, who played bass and sang most of the material. And then I got in the band. We started playing together. Um, I started bringing in my song ideas, which the very first song I wrote for the band was Oasis. It's a good and way to start. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And the guys were like, oh, my gosh, like, wow, what a song. We didn't know you had this writing ability as well. And honestly, I didn't know I did either. either even though I was writing for Chapter, I never had really sat down and really focused the same way as these four the other three individuals were very focused on music and they were all accomplished guys they had all studied theory i was a self-taught guitar player so i didn't really it was a different it took a while for us to kind of do this but mm-hmm. it, it happened very quickly um and after we played a couple of gigs and i you know he'd gone on his mayday for a little bit i asked the guys like you know what's the deal with the name mayday and they said oh it doesn't mean anything we just you know paul was taking latin and he made a just a play on on regular spelling of mayday um and thought it was kind of funny and so i said well maybe we should pick a song uh, a, a band name that would you know more suit what we do and so we decided to uh, um walk away come back reconvene the following week and everybody was going to come up with a name and i was looking through the dictionary trying to figure out different names and stuff i dropped it and when i reached down to pick it up it was open to the page that said enchant And I picked it up and I read the definition um, to rouse through ecstatic admiration through song or incantation. And I thought, that's exactly what I want my music to do. And I thought, this is the name. Brought it to the guys. Everybody else had something that was horrible, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Um, And when I told the guys the definition, the Webster's definition at the time, they were like, man, that's that's great. Let's go with that. So that's how we became a champ. That was very fortuitous that uh, it opened on that particular page. That's uh, the rest is history, as they say. 
Yeah, it's, it, it was. I mean, I, I've told that story to a few people and they just go, really? I'm like, yeah, it was kind of crazy. I actually have um, the word and definition framed in my studio above the door. And it reminds me every time I walk in, you know, what, what, what exactly the band means and what it, you know, what the inspiration was behind it. Mm -hmm. Now you guys went in to record blueprint of the world and you weren't happy with the way it came out. No. So how did Steven Rothery become involved with, with producing five of the songs on this record? Well, we met Steve at a, uh, at a show in LA. We had played with Marillion. We had opened up for Marillion in San Jose at an old club called the Cabaret that was really well known for progressive music at the time. It was connected with um, KSJO, this radio station, and they had a, a show called Stone Trek with Greg Stone, who did nothing but uh, progressive music. I think it was on Sunday nights. Okay. And we all listened to it in the Bay Area because you know anybody who was in Prague, we had, had very few outlets at the time. So we all listened to Stone Track, and Greg was a cool dude, and he liked our music and played some of our demo material on, on the radio and got us a bunch of different gigs at the Cabaret. And one of them was opening up for Marillion, and it was a season's end tour. Um, so we kind of met the guys a little bit, not really, you know, just kind of said hi to them or whatever. Mm -hmm. We loved the band so much. We we're huge fans. Um, and we thought, like, the transition with Steve Hogarth was was amazing. We loved the energy that the band had with a new singer. And we decided to go down to LA, follow them. And they played at the Whiskey. And we decided to go down to watch the show. So we watched the show. And after the show, the Rainbow Bar next door, we decided to walk over there. And there was Marillion sitting in a booth. So we walked up to him, started talking to the guys. Most of the guys didn't want to talk to us. But Steve was very gentlemanlike and started talking to us about music and different things. And we handed him one of our demos. And, you know, there was a card in there and uh, with number on it. And he contacted us and said, wow, I really like what you guys are doing. This is really cool. And Paul and him started kind of establishing a relationship. Um, then Steve came out to visit California on a vacation. Um, and he brought Pete with him and, and Hannah Stobart and asked Paul to play drums on the Wishing Tree project. Oh, okay. So... They were in contact quite a bit. Paul and Hannah fell in love and got married. And they've been married ever since. And, uh, you know, Steve and I hit it off really well. And when we were making Blueprint, he called us and said, how's it going? He was just super excited about the outcome of it. And, you know, I basically told him, I'm not happy with what's happened. I'm not happy with the producer we were using. He wasn't really capturing the band the way that I thought it should be captured. And he said that he had an extra couple of weeks at Par Street Studios in Liverpool, which is owned by Genesis, or at least was at the time, mm -hmm. um, after they had done Brave. And they had recorded all of Brave. And he said, I got, I got two or three weeks. I think it was three weeks, actually. He was going to work a week with Wishing Tree. And he said, why don't you and Paul fly out, bring the master tapes, and we'll see what we can do. So we went out there, worked with Steve, went over as much as we could. We re replaced some guitar parts, replaced some keyboard parts, replaced a few things here and there, and then remixed, I think it was seven songs that we actually did with Steve on that record. Okay. Yeah. So we had, um, I think, I think in the liner notes, it talks about um, the thirst, catharsis, acquaintance, east of Eden and nighttime sky. 
that may be right. It's been, it's been 30 years. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, I, I'm not holding you to anything. Um, yeah. but yeah, the, uh, the, and then he also played a little guitar outro solo on nighttime sky and did some Ebo for you on uh, the catharsis song. Um, no, he did Ebo on the intro to the thirst actually the thirst. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Bad. Um, but so, we couldn't use his name because of contractual obligations yeah, that he was under. So we, we, we had nicknamed him the compiler in the studio after <laughs> working with him for two weeks because he had this great way of recording. And he would say, okay, Doug, go play the part, you know, and I would go out and play the part and he would say, okay, play it again, play it again, play it again. And he would take five or six takes of it. And then he would go through and say, okay, let's take the first phrase here, the last phrase here from this third version and the middle section from the last version or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he would compile a track. So Paul and I started calling the compiler as a joke and it kind of just stuck with us. It was a kind of funny little nickname. Yeah. By the time these came out, these remaster or reissues, yeah. um, he was no longer under that uh, restriction. You could go ahead and name yeah. him at that point. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So the initial blueprint lineup was yourself on guitar, Ed Platt on bass, Ted Leonard on vocals, Paul Craddock on drums, and Mike Benignus Geimer on keyboards with Stephen Rothery helping out with a, a couple of the songs, as I mentioned. And I'm not going to go all the way track by track, but some of these I, I got to mention. You, you've got some concert staples to this day on this album. The Thirst, Oasis, Mayday. These are all ones at Death Store. These are all very commonly played at, at Enchant shows. Uh, these are fantastic songs. When you look back 30 years later, do you hear the flaws in the album or do you feel like this thing is is what you guys wanted to put out at that time? Well, musically, it was exactly what we wanted to put out. Um, sonically, recording-wise, it was not exactly what we wanted it to be. Um, listening to the record for me is very, very difficult because I do hear all the flaws. I do hear all the things that are wrong with it. But I do also hear, um, I want to say, maybe more of the raw brilliance of the ideas that were there because at the time, it, you know, Paul and and myself were really the main writers of the of the band and, and him and i worked so hard on those songs and all the way through you know to when paul's departure after um juggling nine we worked so hard on those records and um you know i was very i was very proud of what we did i just 
always wished that we could have re-recorded it and, and made it sound sonically the way we wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. So that was my only really complaint. I mean, I, you know, I think I became a better guitar player as I got older and same with everybody in the band. Ted became a much better singer. Um, everybody improved, you know, we were pretty young. We were all in our twenties when we made that record. So, you know, you always look back and think you could do better. Hindsight is 2020. And, and, and I, I look back at other, other albums that we've done and I feel way more, you know, impressed by them because I think we, we started working with better people. We started honing our craft a little, little more and our, our end results, I think came out a little better than blueprint, but blueprint writing wise, I think was a very, very strong record and it made a very big impact in the prog world for us. So I've never, you know, not liked it or anything like that. Yeah. The, um, the fact that some of these songs are still favorites among your fans, that's gotta be very satisfying to you as an artist that some of the early stuff that you put out, um, when you were young and raw and full of energy, is some of the stuff that still connects with people today. Oh yeah. I think it's amazing. It's, it's, I can't tell, you know, I really, you can't, you can't, you can try to express how it makes you feel. You can try to explain it. Um, I tell this story every once in a while to people when we were uh, on tour and we were at some festival in Germany and we were going to play acquaintance and Ted put the microphone up to sing. And all of a sudden, we realized the audience was singing the song and we had no idea that the album was making any kind of impact at all really at the time. And that's when we were on dream circle records that went bankrupt. And, you know, that was a whole other story, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, Ted just looked, turned and looked at me and I looked at him and I was like, Oh my gosh, people know the song that I wrote in my bedroom back in Concord, California, you know, like how did that happen? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, that, not to just pick that song in particular, but I've had people email me and contact me and ask me to do an acoustic version, um, for, for weddings and things. I have a, a couple that actually took the lyrics, had them carved into a giant piece of wood that hangs above their bed. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very touching. It's very touching. And, and. I'm always when everybody in the band has always been so appreciative of anybody that's even mentioned our name. You know? Yeah. When I uh, think of that song, it's lyrically, it's one of my favorite enchant songs in your catalog. And it's certainly one of Ted's most emotional vocal performances. Yeah. Interesting story on that. If you, if we have the time, um, sure. I did not like Ted's vocal 
on the song originally. Really? And he was not, and you know, and this is nothing against Ted because he's one of the best singers out there. And he's, he's my brother. I love him to death, but he just wasn't feeling it. You know, and I put on the producer hat a long time ago and I, you know, was in the studio going like, no man, this isn't working. This isn't working. So we decided to, to break for the weekend. Well, during the break, he, a girl that he was very, very much in love with decided that she didn't want to be with him and broke his heart. Mm. He came back on Monday and laid down that vocal and he felt it. He felt the heartbreak in the song. And that's why it turned out the way that it did. I'm so glad we didn't keep the original version because it was kind of flat. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that Ted had to go through that, but at the same time, mm. he suddenly realized what I was talking about in the song. And, and it really, I mean, he was in tears in the studio singing the song. So it was, it was pretty powerful. Pain has created a lot of great art. It's uh, that's for damn sure. At least, uh, at least there's something that good that came out of it. So that's uh, that's great. Uh, Oasis is a song I wanted to bring up because I love the traded vocal lines and the verses that almost overlap. I wish bands had would do this more often. I was just talking about this very subject with Jim Peterick from Survivor and Ides of March about a couple weeks oh. ago um, because he just came out with his new Pride of Lions album, and there's some of that on that album and uh, i i just think and it's it's really one of the things that he had originally envisioned for survivor doing more is oh, wow. trading vocals uh, he and and their original singer so i think it's it's one of the things that i think that as a fan of music i don't know that i don't know if musicians know how much fans like that kind of stuff but we i i think it's fantastic when when there, a band has multiple singers that overlap and, and i love the way you guys did it on the live album it's like i said it was the first song that i had written for enchant um i uh came in with the intro riff and i said to the guys like hey you know i get this idea and we played through it a couple times and you know everybody was kind of getting their part together and uh nobody else could come up with anything and i said okay like you know i'm trying to write with you guys you know here's here's a really cool thing like you know come up so we got to, you know, back then we used to practice monday wednesday and friday every week so like it was on a monday or whatever we showed up on wednesday and no one had an idea showed up on friday and no one had an idea and i said come on guys it can't be that hard and i just wrote the verse right in front of them <laughs> and i was like what about this and they were just like oh my gosh like wow 
And I ended up writing the whole song, you know, that night I went home and wrote the lyrics and wrote the rest of the song. And the trade-off part, I just, to me, it just made sense. It was almost like somebody in their own head listening to their two voices, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's it comes off. Yeah, and that's kind of what it was. Like, here's a guy out in the wilderness, you know, it's all a metaphor, obviously, but, you know, by himself. And that's the way I was feeling at the time. You know, I was very alone, feeling very alone, not sure what life was going to bring. Young man with a lot of aspirations and trudging as hard as I could trying to get to that goal. Um, and it's it, it's just it, it's an epic song. It's a really epic song. I, I um, another song that I you know had ri- written and and Paul helped me with the with the with the middle section of that song. And I just loved, I loved the the back and forth with it. And I tried to do that in a few other songs too. And when when I became a better singer and started singing more with Ted, and a lot of that has to do with singing next to a guy as good as Ted is, mm-hmm. um, it became a lot of fun for us. Because we did like things like that in The Thirst, and we did it in Oasis, and we did it in Transparent Man on the last record. But we're trading off and doing this back and forth kind of thing. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's well, it's fun for the the listener as well. Mayday was a song that you guys put out as your, I mean, it was basically your concert staple opener. Um, love the ethereal opening. It it reminds me, the opening reminds me a little bit of something Arena might have written, but once the guitar kicks in, it's identifiably enchant. Um, you know, it's interesting because back at the, when I, I when I put that song together, it was we had changed the name of the band. We're moving on as Enchant. And I thought like, well, you know, there's this whole era of a band that no one will ever know existed. So I said, you know, I got to write something as an ode to the first incarnation of of the band. Um, And I thought an instrumental would be great. And in my mind, I was thinking it'd be great to have something that was really powerful and interesting to open a show with. And I was at our studio. We had our studio at Paul's house uh, in Lafayette, California. And I went there by myself one night and I sat down with the keyboard and I just started sequencing the background part. And then I came up with the guitar part. Um, And when I played it for the guys, you know, the following couple of days, they were like, wow, this is really cool. And it was an ode to the old band. I mean, that's really what it was. And we did use it for a long time as our opener. It was, it's it's very powerful. It's fun. It's, you know, it, it it has a lot of tension in it, too, which is what I loved. I thought it was a great opener because you're the anxiety that kind of happens in that song already, just listening to it. It still gives me some anxiety when I hear it, to be honest with you. <laughs> definitely it's definitely dramatic uh, and it's a good opener um you mentioned your songwriting do you vary your songwriting in terms of 
do you write on whatever's in front of you? Do you play with a guitar for a while, then play with keyboards for a while? Do you start with a lyric ever? What? How is your songwriting process? Well, most of everything I've ever done starts with the music. I'll grab a guitar or sit down at a piano and I'll start to fool around with something. And it just kind of happens where I'll realize that I'm singing a melody and words start forming. It's kind of a almost subconscious thing in a way for me. Lyrics always come after the fact. I either record it or I'll write down what I'm thinking and what's coming out of my head. Mm -hmm. And then when I come back and look at it the next day, I'll like, whoa, I guess this is what I'm thinking about or what I'm feeling. So with that feeling, let me expound on that. And that's the way I've always done it. I've never taken a theme and decided, hey, I'm going to write about this theme. It's always been I'm playing the progressions or the melody on whatever instrument that I'm doing. And all of a sudden, words start coming out of my mouth. And then I realized that, oh, wow, subconsciously, this is what's coming out. And that's been with every song I've ever written. When you look back at this thing, how cool was it that you got to play guitar on the same song as Stephen Rothery? I know you're a Marillion fan. Oh, it's great. I mean, Steve and I are, are friends. And uh, whenever we're around, we just we have such a great time together. We're just he's such a great, great man. And, you know, I, I, I've stayed at his house in England and, and he's stayed with me. And, you know. We've had a great relationship for the last 30 something years, which has been awesome. And it was, it was great. It was great. I and mean, we joke a lot about, you know, doing something again. I'm always telling them like, Hey, when's your solo album coming out? Give me a call. If you want to burn in solo, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, amazing. I, I honestly, Michael, I, I look back at the things that happened with Enchant and I think like how fortunate am I and the guys to have had that ride and do the things that we have done. And, you know, we, we weren't Marillion or, or yes, or dream theater, or anybody of that magnitude, but, but we sure did enjoy what we had and what we, what fans we gathered over the years, uh, the places that we played, the tours we went on, the bands we opened for the friends that we met, like, you know, Spock's beard is a great example. You know, all the guys in Spock's beard, the original Spock's beard, um, all the way to, you know, the, the last incarnation of Spock's Beard. Those were all guys were all our friends. Mm -hmm. We toured with them. We played shows with them so many times and, and having those relationships. I mean, that's almost half the, the reward of going and being in a, in a band and being in such a cool genre as progressive music. Yeah. When I spoke to Neil Morse about the, uh, you know, how, how strange it is that he's working with Ted so often these days. Ted's one of the guys that replaced him later in Spock's beard. And he talked about those tours with you guys and how fun they were, just how, how many laughs you guys had and how, how funny, you know, you and, and Ted and the, and the, and the guys in Enchant were. Oh man, we, we had so much fun. And, and, and the thing was, you know, we were, we were just all young and crazy and, and, you know, living their dream. And, <laughs> and Neil is just, just to say something about Neil, he's like one of the best people I've ever known. And he mentored me a little bit when we were on tour together and really turned me into a much better performer just by, you know, him and I used to, it was so funny because all the guys would go to bed around midnight or one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And Neil and I would stay up till the sun came up every night, just talking. And we talk about music and bands we loved and songs. And, you know, he's, like me and he loves so much music 
I mean, we talked about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and you know, Elton John and Billy Joel, all these things that we used to listen to when we were kids on the radio. And he was saying the same thing. Hey, you know, growing up where I grew up and listening to AM radio, it's like these artists really formed my musical foundations. And it's the same thing with me. And I think that's one of the reasons why we got along so well, too, as bands, because all the guys are just great people in in in, in the band. And, and we were all really friendly, upgoing. And I remember one guy said to me, it was a promoter for, I think it was for Rosfest a couple of years ago. He said, you you, you guys do know that you have the reputation as the nicest guys in Prague, right? And I was like, no, I did not know that. But we, you know, we get along with everybody. So it's been, it's been great. Well, I can tell you that was my experience was I was at the first Cal Prague and I was one of the patrons at the patron dinner. So I met you and Ted and the guys that night. And that was my takeaway was, was that is, and you guys were just really super nice people. So I don't know if that counts. No, for anything. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, I remember we, there was a, a brush with ego when we started headlining, when we began a headlining act and we started going out on tours and having people opening up for us. I remember Ed joking and saying, Hey, now we get to treat people like crap. And I said, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> never going to happen. I said, we need to treat every opening act like we always wanted to be treated. Sure. Because they're us You're a couple of years back, you know, never let your head get too big. And, and, you know, we always had a great relationship with every band we've ever played with. We've never had a falling out with anybody, never had curse words. It's always been a really good bond. And, and, uh, I've always been kind of proud that, that not only myself, but the guys in the band were that way yeah. and really appreciated what we did have. Let's flash forward 10 years from uh, Blueprint, and you guys did Tug of War, which is now 20 years old. Hard to believe this. I came into the band at Juggling, so I was okay. a little bit late to the party, but uh, you guys went through this uh, uh, you know, Blink of an Eye and, and Tug of War, all fantastic records. This one, um, you and Ted Leonard and Ed Platt still with the band, but Mike and Paul were gone at this point. Uh, Sean Flanagan on drums for this one and Bill Jenkins. This was his first album with the band. So yes. how was it putting a new keyboard player in, you know, and, and getting, getting used to a new guy in the band or new guys in the band? It was, you know, I mean, Paul and I had worked together for quite a long time. And when we were making juggling, there was one, one song, paint the picture. 
That was the song. And uh, we were in the studio working on it, and I could just feel that Paul was not putting into to what the song that I that I wanted him to put in the song. And I was working with Tom Size. We were in a pretty big studio in San Francisco at the time. It was uh, a guy by the name of Herbie Herbert, who's a producer and a manager of bands like Journey and Huey Lewis and Roxette and Santana. I mean, he's a pretty big guy. And mm -hmm. we're at his studio and we're recording and, you know, the money's burning on the clock and, you know, Paul's just not feeling the song. And I, we, it was the first time we ever got into an argument. And I, you know, just told him, like, man, play the freaking song. Like, what are you doing? And he he got mad and he went in and played the performance and the performance was way better because he, he was angry and he had a lot of energy in it, but we got together after it was done. And, and he said, you know, I, I'm really sorry. I just don't, I just don't feel like this is the path for me anymore. I'm, I'm not enjoying playing the music like I used to. And we decided after a very long and emotional conversation that he was going to leave the band. I had no idea what I was going to do because Paul was my right hand and he was my co-writer mm -hmm. on just about everything we did. I mean, I did write a lot of songs by myself, but you know, him and I were, were, were like this. Yeah. Uh, and I remember I went to a giants game with Ted and Ted and I were talking and Ted said, you know what, dude, you can do it. You've got the skills to write and you know, just, just do it. I'm with you hundred percent. I'm not going anywhere we'll find somebody else. And I said, okay, okay. And so I, I remember driving home, there was this kid, Sean Flanagan, who was a fan of the band um, that I had met years before at a music store. I was wearing a blueprint of the shirt, blueprint of the world shirt that doesn't say anything on it. It just has the cover with no writing. And I was buying a guitar. I was actually buying my Tom Anderson guitar that I play the orangey kind of reddish one that I play a lot with a chant and okay i heard through the wall somebody playing erotomania on keyboards and i was like is somebody playing dream theater i'm like what the heck so i walk around the corner and there's two guys standing in the keyboards department one of them was sean and the other one was this keyboard player named matt guillory who played with a bunch of other progressive bands um he plays with james murphy and he played uh with another band i can't remember he was on magna carta for a while um and he was playing erotomania and and I said, are you guys playing Dream Theater? And Sean turned around and he goes, whoa, cool Enchant shirt. And I was like, <laughs> how do you know Enchant? And he goes, dude, those guys are awesome. They're, they're like one of my favorite bands. And I, I said, well, that's my band. And he goes, who are you, the manager? <laughs> and I, I said, no, I'm the guitar player. And he went, you're Douglas A. Ott? He's my full name. <laughs> and I go, yeah. He said, oh, my gosh. So we became friends. I started inviting him to rehearsals and stuff. And he was a really good drummer. He was in a band called Chaos Theory at the time. And I loved his drumming. And he was a great guy. And I got along with him really well. And so when Paul left, I called Sean. And he was living in LA at the time. And I said, hey, uh, how would you like to be the drummer for Enchant? And he goes, are you kidding me? I said, no. Paul and I are parting ways. And I need somebody else. He goes, let me call you back. Hung up. Calls me back two hours later. And he goes, I just quit my job. I just gave notice on my apartment and I just broke up with my girlfriend. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> and he wow. quit and he, and he came up here and uh, I got him a job as a real estate appraiser. Cause that's what I was doing at the time. And we just took off and, you know, it's been, 
not as many records, but a lot of a lot of touring and shows that we played. And and you know, Sean was uh, a different style drummer than than Sean um, than Paul was, but he was good enough drummer that he could pull Paul's parts off and also make his own mark when we started making our records with him. Mm-hmm. And I think we did maybe what three records with Sean, I guess. And you know, he's still one of my best friends in the world. I mean, Sean and I talk all the time still, you know, he just, he lives maybe 15 minutes away from me. So. Well, that was quite a commitment to, uh, yeah. <laughs> drop everything. Was, now, now with what happened with Mike was a different, a little different story. Mike started doing other things. Mike actually lives. Um, I think he's out in he's out in the Midwest somewhere and he became a bluegrass guitar player. And he's a really good bluegrass guitar player now. Mm-hmm. And plays a lot of bluegrass music. But he was another, another thing. He was like, you know, I'm really not, I want to do other things with my life. I want to do other things with my music. And, and you know, I think it was around probably juggling that I ended up having to do a lot of keyboard parts myself. Paul played a lot of parts. Um, I think Mike did one one solo on the whole record. Um, and the rest of the keyboards were all done by Paul and myself. And then when we did um, A Blink of an Eye, I brought in my other really good friend, close friend, Phil Bennett from Starship, and he played a lot of the solo parts, and I played most of the the background parts, and he played most of the the main parts Mm -hmm. on that record. And then getting Bill, you know, Bill's such a great keyboard player. He's so good. But he never really had the experience of being in the studio, recording, writing, it just wasn't really his his thing at that time. So making tug of war with him was a little challenging. Uh, just getting the sounds that we wanted and the feel and the parts. But you know, by the time we moved on from that album, uh, you know, Bill just started shining like nobody's business. I mean, he's such a monster player. Yeah, really, really strong player. So Ted also did uh, all the guitars on See No Evil except the final solo uh, on this album. He, You did piano on Comatose, Mellotron on Proctology, and strings on Beautiful. And you mentioned Tom Size. That was the, he and you mixed the album and you produced and recorded it. Where did you guys record the record? Uh, at my studio in Concord, California called The Auditorium. And uh, spelled O T T. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, at a certain point, I was like, "Why am I going to uh, somebody else's studio and spending tens of thousands of dollars to make a record?" And uh, from from wounded on, I was recording 
pretty much everything at my house except for the drums. We would go to another studio almost all the time, just a better room. Mm -hmm. My room was was not good for drums, but it was great for everything else. So, um, yeah, we recorded everything there. And then, you know, the drums we recorded somewhere else. I'm trying to think where we recorded the drums for that particular record. I think, oh, it was at, uh, it was at uh, Herbie Herbert Studio. It's no longer there in San Francisco. I don't remember what it was called, to be honest with you, but okay. it was a pretty cool place. So let's hit some of the highlights on this one. For me, I think you guys got the opener exactly right. I think Sinking Sand is a fantastic song. Yeah. Uh, Ted wrote the lyrics and you and Ed wrote the music. bass part near the end it's not quite a bass solo but it's this nice little interlude that gives the song something special i think yeah Ed's just an amazing tap player. I don't allow him to do much in Enchant, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, he's always been really good at it. And he's also a really good slap player as well. He, you know, he grew yeah. up, him and I, you know, became best friends at 15 years old. And um, he loved listening to guys like Stanley Clark and Lewis Johnson and uh, Mark King and stuff like that. He loved that slap basing. But he also really liked Michael Manring and guys like that that started doing this tap style. And he adapted it really well. Um, when I had written Sinking Sand, um, and I wrote the whole song, and then Ed said, hey, check out, you know, the end progression you wrote? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, check this out. And he tapped out the imp- that part. And I go, dude, that's brilliant. Like, let's change the arrangement and have it break down to just the bass line that'd be so cool and that's i mean that's what was ed's contribution to that in section was writing that part and putting it in there and i thought it was just brilliant i thought it was so cool and the way that the you know the band comes back in with the piano and then the guitar and it you know, goes out i thought it was really cool yeah I think but i like i like long music you know we we've we've written some long songs i'm i'm a child of yes and genesis and mm-hmm. king crimson and pink floyd and stuff like that so i i really like the longer things and a lot of people have given me crap about it. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, your songs are so long, dude. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot longer ones out there, but oh, of course, I, I think it's good because I think it gives you opportunities to do things 
that are interesting and not necessarily just two and a half minute Beatles-esque in and out, you know, start with the chorus and that kind of thing. But the the title track, Tug of War, you said in the liner notes that you were going for a sound that was kind of Soundgarden meets Filter. And Ed said that it sounded like later era Rush. And I I kind of agree with Ed that it does sound like very counterparts test for echoey Rush. But it's I mean, that could also be that that's what was influencing Rush at the time. That's the really cool thing about what's going on with music through the years is you start hearing things on the radio. You know, MTV was it was obviously a factor for a while as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul and I were really getting interested in some of the newer bands that were coming out. Now we, when grunge hit, I was like, I hated it. I wanted nothing to do with grunge. I just was like, oh great, pimply faced kids playing three chords and screaming. You know, that's what I felt about it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Stone Table Pilots came out. And I started listening to those guys and thinking, wow, these guys are like heavy Zeppelin. There's really good chord progressions, a lot of very interesting parts happening. And it made me and Paul think, well, why can't we explore some different ideas as well? And this was around the break era is really when that started happening. And we were like, well, let's try to do something a little more stone table pilots like make our core progressions a little more interesting make them a little different maybe add dissonance to certain songs where i was just like no it's got to be melodic all the time that was my rule <laughs> and then once we got to break i started thinking like yeah maybe we should change this up a little bit and and allow some of these influences to come in and i didn't know who soundgarden was honestly and then paul said hey check this out and he brought me I think it was bad motor finger or breath or whatever it is. And I was like, wow, like that guy can scream. And these songs are these heavy riffs are, are kind of cool. You know, maybe the grunge thing, there's more to it than I'm allowing myself to, to let into my world. Cause I really didn't like Nirvana very much at all. You know, Pearl Jam didn't really impress me too much. Um, funny thing is, and I'll just say this real quick. I'm in a Pearl Jam tribute band now, <laughs> but <laughs> Pearl Jam is all the time. And I liked them a lot more than I used to, but at the time I wasn't really into it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I you know I was listening to a lot of heavier music at the time, and I was trying to capture a little more deep drop D kind of vibe with with tug of war. Yeah, you mentioned in the liner notes also that it's a song about being sort of at war with yourself. Lyrically, was there something you were wrestling with at the time? Yeah, you know, I was I was going through um, 
kind of, uh, I don't want to say split personality, but I certainly was feeling like I was two different people when I was trying to figure out how two different people can become one. And uh, I was really fighting both sides of, of who I was and what was going on in my life. Was it going to be a family man, a husband, you know, doing a job? Was it going to be a musician, traveling, writing songs? And I just was being pulled from two different sides all the time. And I kind of felt like somebody had said, I don't remember who it was, but some friend of mine said to me, it's like, Dad, it's, it's almost like you're fighting yourself when I had mentioned this. And I thought, yeah, you're really right. And that was kind of the impetus of the song was me fighting myself. And the cover is, you know, a great, I think, uh, adaptation of that yeah. as well. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's one of my favorite Enchant covers. Um artwork wise but this is a so this was a very personal song for you but an even more personal song for you is the song beautiful which again you guys don't do ballads a lot but when you do them you really nail them i think this was one of the, Thank you. the highlights for me how did we come to this when did we reach that fork in the road that carried us from our You had an argument with your wife and and you wrote this song out, the lyrics. And and for me, even though these are your words, again, one of Ted's really great performances vocally. I totally agree. You know, I ended up getting a divorce from my first wife uh, a couple, some years back, five, six years ago now. Um, but we had a very, very strong bond. And she's still one of my best friends today. And I felt like and I learned this as you do through the years, you know, you, you gain experience and it gives you some knowledge and some wisdom. And, um, I saw our relationship crumbling and I truly believe that, you know, love and how you react to things is a choice. And I was saying that we have a choice here. We have something that's really beautiful. Well, now we could let it falter. We could, you know, let it break on the ground if we want to, or we can try to do something about it. And that's what the song was really about is, is I know how beautiful love is and how a beautiful love relationship is. And it, I, I just was sit telling her, like, we can fix this. You know, we can do something about this. If we choose to do something about it, we focus on the right areas and do the right, you know, the, the, the follow through because we have such a strong foundation, we can do it. And that's where the song came from. I sat down and wrote that at the piano. And my piano was in my uh, my dining room at the time. And I sat down and wrote that song on piano. And I remember playing it for Ted. And he was like, wow, dude, this is just so powerful. 
And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite ballad songs that I've written for sure. Yeah. The, um, the song Living in a Movie, this was one with darkly comedic lyrics, just kind of piling on the worst day possible into someone's life. And and it shows that you and you guys have used humor. You, you've used humor in your lyrics before, yeah, but sure. this is a. You know, what what kind of inspired you to go that way to go you know let's let's just okay i'm having a bad day but what if we had the worst day possible like w- walk me through that well i'm gonna actually tell you something that i have never really told anybody and that and ed doesn't even know this but that song was inspired by ed's life he was just going through so much stuff at the time and it seemed like every day something he would tell me something worse was happening and i just i I was laughing comically going like this is like almost like a sad sack comic book from the 70s i was a kid it's like you can't believe how much trouble this guy seems to get into and it was like oh you know my and this is a true story by the way he called me one night and said um my wheel came off of my car and it bounced over he was on the Bay Bridge going to San Francisco and it bounced over the edge of the bridge and hit a tugboat. And I just started laughing hysterically. <laughs> I'm like, what? Then he calls me a week later and says, I'm standing on the side of the road. My car's on fire. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me right now? He said, no, I had to take all my base stuff out of the back where the front end was on fire. The fire engines are coming right now. And it just was one thing after another. And it was like a couple of months of just, you know, and then it's, he got a divorce, you know, just like everything was just, so I wrote the song. Now, none of this, the story is actually what happened to Ed at all. Mm-hmm. It just, I made up things that must, how, it, cause it seemed like it, it must be a movie. It can't be real life. Mm-hmm. This is somebody had to make this up. It can't be real. So that's where the whole living in a movie kind of thing came from. Yeah. And I just wrote a story, you know, about all these horrible things happening to somebody. And it was really based on all these things that were happening to Ed at the time. Forgot my love, I overslept again. Had to shave in a hurry, almost cut off my chin. Slipped in the bathtub, I think I broke my neck. My car's out of gas, I forgot to change. That's an incredible story. I I think too that the uh, the song has one of my favorite guitar solos from you in it. As well. Oh, thank you. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but uh, <laughs> I'll have to go back and listen to it. Um, Long way down is one where I I like the way that you know again get the harmony going in the 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 chorus. Long way down, I I I love the way the voices blend there. Makes me 
and then um see no evil that was the that was the ted song ted when did ted really start writing heavily for the band well, you know, Ted always was a writer. He was in a couple other bands before he joined in chat and he was writing in those bands, but he was more a blues guy. When he came in, he was all about Steve Ray Vaughan and he had the tone, the, the, the Stratocaster playing very bluesy. But Ted's biggest influence was Kansas. He's a huge Kansas freak and that's where his prog side came from. So he loved Steve Walsh. He loved Carrie Levergren. He loved um, Rich, his guitar playing. Mm-hmm. So he started, once he started hanging out with me and the guys, we started turning them on to all these other bands like Queens Reich and Yes and, you know, all these different progressive bands. And he started listening to that stuff and his style started changing as a guitar player. And, um, the first song that he, I think, actually showed up that he'd actually written was uh, at the end of Break. I'm trying to remember what the name of the song is. It's an acoustic piano song that we, Paul and I, arranged. And it wasn't his arrangement. He was not happy with the arrangement that we did, but uh, it fit better for what we were doing. I don't have my albums in front of me, and I don't think about them. But, uh, uh, but that was the first song that he had written for the band. And then after that, he started writing more and I started really liking what he was doing. You know, when Ted was first presenting ideas, they kind of got shot down a lot because it just wasn't really what the chat was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. But by the time that we started getting into, you know, some of the records where he's writing songs, just listen to the last record you know, he's got two songs on that record that are, those are Ted songs that he wrote and then brought in and then we kind of enchantized them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but when Ted writes, he, he can write really, really strong material. He one really thing, can. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention with living in a movie is that, uh, Bill Jenkins has a writing credit for that. What do you remember what Bill contributed to that song? <clears throat> you know, I don't, I'd have to go back. <laughs> I'd have to go back to the song. Yeah. That's the one, the hardest thing, you know, actually I, I got together with Paul a couple months back and, and I said to him, Hey man, do you remember what you contributed to this particular track? I don't remember which track it was. And he said, Oh yeah, I wrote the bridge. I was like, glad you remember that. Cause I don't remember. You know, <laughs> Paul has an amazing memory though. He remembers everything. I mean, he could even t- probably today tell me how to play songs. I don't even remember how to play. <laughs> even when, even though he was a drummer, he knew every chord that I played in every song. He's got that kind of mind. He's a great guitar player and a great piano player as well. Yeah, one of my favorite instrumentals is on this album, Progtology.
as the liner notes say, uh, Progtology is the physiology and pathology of progressive music. And for me, this is a, a really great spotlight moment for Bill on his first Enchant album. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. We did, uh, oh, I think what we did a trio of prog uh, titled mm-hmm. um, instrumentals. Prognosis being the first one on blank. Um, and I just, I don't even know why I got into, I always loved instrumentals. So I thought instrumental music was great. When Ed and I first started playing together, nobody could sing. So we, we had a, a three piece uh, with a drummer and we just wrote instrumental music and it was always fun. And I really liked it. And, you know, I always liked when bands did instrumentals like rush, you know, they threw an instrumental out there every once in a while. Um, and I'm also also a big Steve Lukather fan. So he'd always do some sort of instrumental on one of his records, like Dave's gone skiing or, you know, <laughs> something like that. And uh, I really, really thought it'd be fun to do. And I wanted to put Prague somewhere in the title. Yeah. So, you know, prognosis, we started out with Progtology. Bill actually came up with the name that. And he, and we laughed. We were at dinner one night, all having some drinks. And, you know, and I said, hey, we, you need, we need to name this new instrumental. And it has to have prog in it. And, and Bill said, what about Progtology? <laughs> we all started <laughs> laughing, you know, because it sounds like Progtology. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, uh, yeah, he really shines on that. That as that, well. Did that start with the guitar riff, or did, yeah. how did how did that? Is that where you started with yeah. that one? Yeah, um, all three of the instrumentals were written on guitar originally, and then I, you know, brought them in to the guys, and then they started doing. Yeah, that's what I love about it, the band. You know, I, I I had play with really good musicians, have really good ears, and um, I'm able to bring in an idea even if it's a fully formed idea and it still gets enchantized because everybody takes whatever part that they have and makes it their own. And that's what the magic is about the band and how the songs become as good as they are. I could do all those songs by myself and they wouldn't be half as good, even though I wrote most of them, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I love what the Mellotron brings to that song. The Mellotron sound really, really gives it some extra kick in the pants and it's, you don't normally hear a Mellotron in an, in a rockin' song like that, but yeah, it's a great little like uh, embellishment on the song. I think I thought it was really cool and it was fun. I mean, my my I rec- my record guy didn't like it. He was he, <laughs> I mean, he he thought the song was great. He just didn't like the Mellotron part. Really? And I said why? And he goes, well, it just seems kind of cheesy to me. Is what he said. And I said, I well, good. Maybe it should be. We're not taking. It's not supposed to be you know, serious necessarily. The song has a sort of a whimsical kind of a vibe to it anyway. Mm-hmm. So why not? What's wrong with that? You know? Yeah. And I think it, when you, when you name it progtology, it, it automatically lends itself to don't take this so seriously. You yeah, know? of course. But you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of comedy and um, I've always enjoyed artists that have put some humor in their music. I mean, not every song, you know, not like, um weird al yankovic or something but you know i love like guys like todd rungren that would always put some sort of funny song on his record whether it be bang on the drum all day or you know on an onomatopoeia or something like that it's like let's music doesn't have to be serious it should be a reflection of life and there's so much humor in life why can't we put that in music too so yeah that was my take on it and music's not it's also supposed to be fun it's not supposed to be stand there with your arms crossed and count yeah. out you know kind of thing um exactly. 
this thing, uh, the closer is comatose. Uh, this is another one of the great Ted vocal songs. And it's again, this is a different type of song for Enchant. Starts off that soft piano intro and everything. A face with no emotion Lost in the television's glow He's slipping into darkness Not far from comatose With a bottle in his left hand A cigarette in his right He's drowning out the echo of voices in the night. Um, tell me about this song. What was on your mind for this song? Well, again, back to relationship with my ex-wife at the time. Uh, I was feeling part of the tug of war. Um, story i was feeling like i was being torn uh, my wife wanted to settle down and have a family and everything that she was saying that she wanted was something that i was not in a place to be at i was wanting to be something doing something else and so i found myself um drinking pretty heavily and sort of numbing myself and avoiding the conversation um and i just that was my feeling of where I was. I was literally putting myself into a coma to escape these decisions that I had to make at some point. I had to, at some point it had to, it was going to have to come to a head. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of a dark, dark time. And the song came out very dark and it's a very dark subject for me. And it was also me also knowing that it was going to be the end of my relationship because I, I knew that I had to make the decision that was going to be best for me and not best for her, which is very, very hard to do. Um, we didn't play the song again for years and years and years and years. Cause I couldn't get through it. I, I would literally break into tears. If you ever watch the DVD during the guitar solo, I'm actually literally crying. And my ex-wife is in the audience at the time. And we were separated at the time. We separated for a year and a half at that time. Um, I was literally, I literally cried during the guitar solo. I made them edit it in a way that it didn't show me too much because I was very embarrassed by it that I couldn't keep my emotions in check while playing. Um, and I told the guys after that, I said, we're not playing the song ever again. But we did years later once I got over it. Because yeah. I love the song. I, I love the harmony parts, you know, and the, and the chorus as it's going out. The outro is really cool. And um, Yes, I was very proud of the song coming back and listening to it, you know, some 10, 12 years later. For sure. That really kind of shows how good Ted is because he can interpret someone else's words and make make you feel them, even though they're not his thoughts. Well, you know, that's the one thing that's really been great about our friendship and our working relationship is that, you know, for years I would just sing the song and, and then give it to Ted and then Ted would sing what I sang because he's got such a great voice and you know, he tried to get me to sing on records for years and I just refused. It wasn't until, you know, I think break or something. I finally like started maybe doing something. Um, and he always encouraged me to do it because he's like, dude, you sing everything at every live gig. It's like, why can't you do it in the studio? And you know, much like, uh, 
um, Glenn Fry said about Don Henley, he said, you might've noticed that I started singing less and less because we had Don Henley. Like, why do I need to hear, who wants to hear my voice when you have somebody who sings that good? I never agreed with that statement because I love Glenn Fry's voice as well. Um, and it was like that though, but you know, we had Ted, so that was my thinking. I don't need to sing. I can just sing live, but Ted was pushing me to do it more and more. But you know, I would lay down these vocals and Ted would just always captured whatever I sang. He was so great. I mean, he, from, from the, the get go with the thirst oasis enchanted all those songs. I originally sang all the demos and, and he was able to just really capture what I emotion I laid down. He's great at doing it. Um, and he's also really great at making it better. So whatever I originally sang, you know, we'd be in the studio and Ted be in the booth and he'd say, Hey, let me try something. And he would maybe change the melody or change the inflection or even change the cadence sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and, and he did that with death door. Um, even though I didn't write the lion's share of death door and Paul wrote the, the melody and the vocals to that and the, I mean, the lyrics to it. But when we got to the second verse, Ted said, can I try something? And I was like, yeah, go ahead. And he just raised the whole level of where the vocal line was. Suddenly it was a new melody and way higher. And I thought, wow, I didn't even think of that. That's great. So, I mean, Ted's always been great at doing stuff like that. He did exactly the same thing on every song that I've ever given him. Yeah, fantastic. So my copy of of tug of war has a bonus track the live version of below zero that uh, that you wrote on and it was on wounded uh mm-hmm. this this one was recorded i think at 2002's near fest yeah now how cool is it for a a prog band to play a place like near fest or Rozfest fest or or the first ever cal prog you guys were doing these festivals and you know our music is is largely underground and has been for decades, but yeah. you have these opportunities to come together and see, you know, what would have been your peers and yeah. favorite bands of all of us that attended these shows. What was that like for you to to be invited to play those and and to go and play them and and know that you have a job to do, but also how cool it is that you get to see these other bands too. Oh, it's amazing. That's that's the one thing about the prog community. You know. I, in the 80s, when I was in the you know hair band era, playing in bands, there was always competition with bands. And it was always, we're going to blow these guys off the stage kind of a mentality. I actually got into a few physical altercations back then with other band members of other bands talking shit about my band, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And progressive music's never been like that. It's always been a community of, of like-minded individuals. And it's really cool. When you go on the Yes Cruise or or you go to, you know, Cal Prague or whatever it is, and and you get to see a guy like Mike Keneally, who's just an amazing artist, amazing player, you know, walking up, playing acoustic guitar, handing it to me and say, play me something, Doug. And so I start playing something and he's like, oh, that's cool. Give me another guitar. And then all of a sudden he's playing something with me. And there was no like, oh, I'm better than you. You're better than me kind of thing. It was just like two guys just having fun. Backstage at um, Cal Prague, I sat in the back of the of the stage while some of the artists were playing, playing piano with with Nick DiVigilio. And him and I were playing all these piano songs together. And he knew a lot of these great old 
prog songs like I do. So, it, and, and we were just laughing and having so much fun. And, and that's the community that it is. It's just, it's just great. It's awesome. And, and we've become friends with so many great bands, you know, like um, John Mitchell from Lonely Robot and Arena. I mean, I met him at an Arena show. And, you know, I was introduced to him and he said, wait a second, you're the, you're the guy from Enchant. He's like, oh, dude, I love your records, man. I'm totally a fan of yours. And we became really good friends. And, you know, I love seeing him. Every time I see him, I'm just like so happy. And I've got a lot of friends in a lot of bands like that, you know. I mean, yeah. Ted became good friends with the singer of Hankin. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've, we've been lucky. We've been really lucky. And I, I, every time we do something with, with other bands, I'm always really happy because, like, I, I get to see – I mean, the first time I saw Saga was was on the Yes Cruise, and they were my like one of my top three bands of all time. Yeah, and you know, I saw them, got to meet them, and like a year later, I'm getting a call from Michael Sadler to play guitar with him on the on um, the uh, festival out in New Jersey. And, you know, we got Ed and, and uh, Jimmy Keegan to play from Spocksbury to play drums. And and it was pr- pretty much three Enchant dudes, you know, a Spocksbeard guy. And then and Ted also played on a couple songs. And then Michael Sadler, you know, and we're, here we are playing On the Loose with Michael Sadler. I mean, I'm looking at Ed. We're almost in tears singing like we, you know, we were trying to figure this material out in our bedrooms when we were kids. You know, at 16, 17 years old. And here I am playing with one of my idols. And then, you know, uh, six months later, we're, we're on the Yes Cruise playing with him again. And I mean, that's just like the highlight for me. I, I could, I, I, you know, I can die now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a big old grin on my face because I've had Michael on the show. I've had uh, John Mitchell on the show. Uh, huge fan of everything John Mitchell does. And Michael was putting together a project. He was getting ready to, they were getting ready to do that tour. And I got to talk to him a little bit about um worlds apart which was a a favorite album of mine in the 80s and i was going to ask you about saga because to me i was going to ask you about your guitar tone because your tone to me somewhat reminds me of if you took rothery and the saga guitar sound and mixed them together was that your intent or did you just come upon your tone naturally you know i as a guitar player the we joke about this. Guitar players joke about this all the time. The endless search for tone, right? You're constantly buying new amps and new pedals and guitars and tr- pickups and everything you could possibly do to try to find that tone, whatever it is. You know, and a lot of guys find it and then they stick with it. Like Eddie Van Halen, the first Eddie Van Halen album. When you heard that, bon, on, 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 out, sound like, where did that come from? Never heard a guitar sound like that in my entire life. Steve Ray Vaughan, same thing. But then you go into the prog world, Hackett, his guitar tone. So different than anybody else's. Um, Hal's guitar tone, totally different from anybody else's. Well, Ian was like that too. Ian had a little heavier sound to me. And mm-hmm. coming, you know, growing up listening to, you know, Black Sabbath and, and Ozzy Osbourne and Michael Shankner and Thin Lizzy and, you know, all these bands that I was into, I liked a little heavier guitar sound. So I gravitated more towards the heavier guitar sound with Enchant. And tried to say, okay, well, I at the time I was the only guitar player, so let's make me a little heavier. You know, we still have that keyboard element for very strong. Uh, at the time with Paul, he was obviously very much into Neil Peart and had a very strong, defined way of playing. Um, we loved Getty Lee's bass sound. You know, we loved that Chris Squire sound, and 
So we tried to incorporate all those kind of things in it. It wasn't until I discovered Merlin that I went like, oh my gosh, I need to change what I'm doing a little bit. Um, I need to focus more on some clean sounds as well. And, you know, that's the things I had always loved about Steve Rothery too, is that he, his sound is so different and unique. I mean, obviously he was influenced by, by Hackett and, you know, Gilmore, mm-hmm. but man, his, his playing, I always loved his playing. When I first heard Steve play a solo of Kaylee, I thought to myself, I'm doing this all wrong. And, you know, you could listen to the progression of my playing through the records. And I started slowing down and being more melodic because to me, that spoke to me more than trying to be Ingve or, or a guy who just played a bunch of fast, really notes, yeah. um, which is what I was trying to do in my youth. I was trying to play as fast as I could and be as most impressive as I can. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden I realized like, you know what, listen, listen to what David Gilmore does. Like he can say more with one note than than any shred guitar player does with a million so my style started changing a little bit but my tone i i got you know mesa boogies out here in petaluma it's about an hour away from me and they're pretty heavily influenced out here in the california rock scene a lot of people gravitated away from the martial english sound and, and started with this american boogie sound and a lot of the heavier bands had that so i got into boogie and that really is what kind of made me have that kind of sound was a little heavier sound was the boogie amps. Doug, what are you up to now? What are you What are you working on? You mentioned the Pearl Jam uh, cover band. What What is keeping you busy? I know a couple of weeks ago you said you had a really full plate on the, over the weekend. Well, I I'm in like five bands. I play about four to five nights a week. Um, I travel a lot with these bands as well. So um, I'm in a Pearl Jam tribute band. I'm in a Police tribute band. I'm starting an STP tribute band right now. Uh, I play in a country rock band and I have a seventies band where I do all seventies AM radio music. Um, I also play acoustic solo all the time. So that keeps me really busy. And I also have a full-time job as a construction guy. So, um, and I have a 15 year old daughter (laughs) and a wife that I've been married to for three years. So I'm, I'm very, very busy. Yeah. Not a lot of time. There's not a lot of Doug times, put it that way. <laughs> Is there a way for people to keep up with your your various uh, uh, tribute bands that you're working in? Uh, you know, I post everything on Instagram and Facebook. Okay. All my gigs. Um, it's about all I do on social media. I very rarely post anything else these days. But yeah, if anybody wants to uh, 
you know, follow my social media, then you'll find out what I'm doing and where I'm at. All right. And I still, you know, we're still in talking about making another chat record. So sorry for the delay, but uh, <laughs> I, I really hope, and, and, and all the guys do, we all really want to do something again. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to find the time to get it to happen. Yeah. I, I, are you, um, are you keeping up with what, what are the other guys doing in the, in this uh, hiatus? What have they been up to? Well, you know, Sean is uh, he's a real estate appraiser, has his own business and he's very active with his son who is plays guitar and uh, is in baseball, really, really big baseball player. Mm-hmm. So he's really involved in his life. He was in an ACDC tribute band for a long time called Long Gone Bond, and they did all the Bond Scott stuff. Ed has played in a bunch of different bands as well. He was in a White Snake tribute for a while and played in another band doing some cover stuff and some originals. Bill has, you know, he's made a solo record. If you haven't checked it out, you should check it out. It's really cool. Um, he also did another record with Thought Chamber in the meantime. Okay. Um, another really amazing record for for his playability. It's just insane on that record. Um, and Ted's obviously was still busy doing all the things that he does yeah. with all the bands and the different things he does, which, you know, I just, a side note here, just so proud of, of my, I used to call my little brother Ted because, uh, you know, he's like eight years younger than me, but, uh, yeah, he just blossomed and, you know, super proud of everything he's done. Yeah. All right. Um, well, this has been a fun for me. I've really enjoyed uh, finding out a little bit more about these records and yeah. we'll have to have you back to talk about some of the others when they have uh, anniversaries coming up too. Sure. But, uh, Anytime. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Doug, for your time. I wish you nothing but the best. And we'll be looking out for that next Enchant album whenever you guys are able to get together and do it. Sounds good, Michael. Thank you so much. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon, at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. When's your birthday? Uh, 14th, September 14th. Uh, Hello, Virgo. Yep, Hello, Virgo.